ladies, it's Brittany Brazel. The Lord has given me a passion for motherhood and homemaking. From that passion, a ministry has birthed no higher calling. There is no higher calling on my life than to be wife to Simeon and mama to my littles. I still have so much to learn, but as I continue to grow, it is my desire to share the truths God is teaching me. Hey ladies, welcome back to the No Higher Calling podcast. As we wrap up our Respectable Sins Bible study, we have this one and one more, and then it will have been a whole year going through the book Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. And I've shared before, but just in case you're just jumping in, um, while this book has really been so instrumental in helping me to to study God's Word and to really uh, be open to asking Him, where have I let... Um, Um, different sins become an acceptable part of my everyday life, this is just a launch point. So this is not a book study. It's just been a book that I just read for fun and the Holy Spirit used to convict me and to drive me to his word and to find out more about what God says about different sins that are not horrible, ugly, blatant sins that we might see in our culture, but are things that, you know, gossip, pride, um, you know, complaining, envy, little things that we just tend to be like, well, you know, it's just my personality or it's just how I am or, well, you know, it's, it could be much worse. You know, it's not an affair or a murder. You know, these are just little things, pet sins, we might call them. But as we've said before, all sin is an affront against the character of God. And our scripture memory verse that we're going through with this in Psalm, order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. So in this study, we actually come to the last uh, respectable sin that this book addresses, which is worldliness. I'll go ahead and give you a sneak peek. Um, December's episode, as we wrap up respectable sins, is going to be, okay, so where from here? And that is the last chapter of the book. So we've studied all of these sins. We've looked at this. I mean, goodness, if you've been following along on the podcast, we've been, it's been a year that we have been visiting visiting this idea every month. So where do we go from here? Stay tuned. That's coming in a few weeks. But as we wrap up, we are just going to end on the respectable sin of worldliness. And I think at first glance, you know, when, when we hear the word worldliness, we kind of think like, duh, you know, we're Christians. We know we're not supposed to be worldly. I mean, there's varying levels of what might be deemed as worldliness. And the author gives some examples in the book. Um, But let's try to get God's heart on this matter today and to see um, if worldliness is something that we have allowed to creep into our hearts as we just live in a fallen, broken world where we are sinners and we, our flesh is weak and we are prone to sin. You know, I I think of the, the hymn, come thou found, he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If it was up to our flesh, that's, that's what we are. We're just, we are, sheep that are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the side of our shepherd who only wants the best for us. We are prone to see that, oh, well, maybe we think the grass is greener on the other side. Um, Insert this worldliness. Like maybe what I'm experiencing here is, is more important to me than the future. And, you know, I don't, sometimes I don't think we might say it that way. Like, oh, I don't think earth is more important than heaven, but we live our lives in a way that that's the message that it gives to the world around us, that we are so consumed with things of this world that 
the things of heaven, the things of eternity seem so distant, so far. And, you know, God says this world isn't our home. We are pilgrims. We are vagabonds. We're, we are just travelers going through this brief time here on planet earth. And, and this isn't home. We were made for something else. We were made to, to spend eternity in one of two places. And I pray that that is heaven with God. I pray that you have trusted him as your Lord and savior, asking him to forgive you from your sins and trusting him to be your savior. Um, so that you can spend that eternity in heaven so that heaven will be your home. Because if not, the alternative is hell, eternal separation from God. And, you know, we often hear, even sometimes in kind of scare tactic ways of all the horrors of hell, you know, the fire, the darkness, the screaming, and all of that is true. All of that is in God's word. And, and I'm not saying that we sh- should not say it because if God's word says it, you know, then, then it's truth. But I think we forget that the worst part about hell is eternal separation from God. Far, far worse than the pain, than the agony of of the, the physical, what you will go through. The worst thing is that there, there is no hope of ever being rectified, being reconciled with God. All hope at that point is gone. You will be forever separated from from God, from your creator, from the, the shepherd who woos you to his side, but who you have rejected. So if anyone is listening and you aren't sure that heaven is your home, please message me, email me, reach out to me. However, find someone in your life that you can reach out to, speak to someone in your church and get that right because you do not want to face an eternity separated from the Lord. That was a rabbit trail. I'm not sure how I got on that, but it, it was a worthy one going down if the Holy Spirit just so guided that that might encourage one, even one person hears that and and they have something to get right with God. It was worth my, <laughs> my train of thought going on different tracks. But back to talking about worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. God gives this command. He said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Our perspective is so, and I think that's where I got talking about that is eternity. We need to have an eternal perspective. And and yes, let me just say, okay, taking care of your family, working a job because you have to have money, because we have to eat, like that that's fine. That's not loving the things of the world because you work a job and you provide for your family. And hey, yeah, we enjoy vacation. Um, it, it, That's not wrong. Getting a car, getting a house, having nice things, none of that is sin. But it is when we allow our our minds and our drive and our motivation to be things of this world that it becomes a problem. 
And that's really kind of what the author brings out in this chapter as he is talking about worldliness. So the author defines worldliness as being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. The things of this temporal life may or may not be sinful in themselves. What makes our attitude toward things that are not sinful worldliness is the high value that we put on them. Colossians 3.2 says to set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. What has our affections? What captures our mind? What captures our time? What captures our heart? Is it eternity or is it things of the world? If it's things of the world, we have a problem. We have allowed this sin of worldliness to creep in and to take a place that God does not intend for it to have in the life of a believer. He goes on to say, Worldliness means accepting the values, mores, and practices of the nice but unbelieving society around us without discerning whether or not those values, mores, and practices are biblical. Worldliness is just going along with the culture around us as long as culture is not obviously sinful. Um, and, And this comes all the way back to the respectable sins. You know, if there are parts of our culture that we deem as sinful, you know, we might not go along with those things. We might balk at that. We might stand against that. Um, but he has this idea of this just going along, the respectable things. They, you know, it's just everybody else is doing it. That's just the way that we live. That's the way our culture is. Um, that, that's not an excuse. And he really addresses these in three different areas that we'll just kind of hit through really quickly. The first one is in the area of money. He says, in a 2003 survey, members of eight evangelical denominations gave 4.4% of their income to God's work. This was actually a decline from the 6.2% that members of those same denominations gave in 1968. If those eight denominations are reflective of evangelicalism as a whole, it means that we are becoming less generous toward God with our money. And, you know, I, I don't know what denominations were interviewed there or anything, but it is supposedly believers people that say that they are followers of Christ. And on average, 4.4% of the income goes to the Lord. What does that show? What does that reveal to us? Um, you know, your giving is is connected with your heart. And if you are stingy, if you are not having an eternal perspective, then your money is going to be caught up in worldly things. And, and like I said earlier, it takes money to live. We have to work to pay the bills, to feed our family, to enjoy one another, to, you know, to take the vacations, to do the fun things. And I don't think God is calling us to a life of, you know, just being miserable um, because, oh, money's terrible. Money's not the sin. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Again, coming back to this motivation, um, is money a driving force in your life? And obviously from that statistic, you know, Simeon joined me here a while back on the podcast. We did an episode called The Windows of Heaven and just talking about God's command to his people to tithe their income. We personally believe from scripture that 10% of everything that we make is God's, like non-negotiable, 10% of it is his. That is our tithe. And then above our tithe, above that 10%, their offerings. You know, we we give to to the church, we give to missions, we give to people in need. Um so it is staggering to me that 4.4%, okay, so so I'm teaching Eden math. 
We just learned it about rounding. So it, in, when teaching her how to round, it showed a picture of this umbrella. And it had a zero on the left, you know, the bottom point of the umbrella, and a 10 on the other side on the right. And then it had numbers 1 through 9 kind of arced up around the, the curve of the umbrella. And it was showing you that if the number is 4 or smaller, it rounds down to 0. And if it's 5 or higher, it rounds up to 10. Ladies, 4.4% rounds down to 0. It's not even close to the 10% that is supposed to be non-negotiable. That's supposed to be God's. That there's, There shouldn't even be a question of whether or not I give at least 10%. It's the Lord's. So what is this showing me? This statistic is showing me that worldliness has crept into our hearts as believers, that there is something that is out of whack in our hearts when we are not even simply obeying God's commands, much less having a giving heart above that. We need to not allow worldliness to control how and what we use our money on. We need to let God's word, a a love for the Lord. And you know, there are some times where it is difficult to put that 10% in the offering plate because we're sitting here like, okay, God, we are trusting you, but I don't know how we're going to buy groceries this week. And you've given us four mouths to feed on on top of ourselves. Like you're going to have to do a miracle to make this happen. And I think we've been in places, I think we've all been in seasons of, of a lack where it is difficult. And then there are seasons of abundance where it's not so hard to put that money in. But in seasons of lack or seasons of abundance, why do we give? We give cheerfully as unto the Lord because of what he has done for us. You know what, ladies? 100% of everything I have, all the money that is in my bank account, of, of all of the stuff that fills my house, of the air that fills my lungs is directly from the Lord. None of it's mine. Absolutely none of it. So, he he has every right to ask me to give a mere 10% back to him and then some as he lays things on my heart but but we just we need to be careful that we do not allow worldly thinking and worldly ambition to keep us um, in in a state of a love of money of allowing worldliness to take over in this area of our lives Another one he goes on to talk about is immorality. Now, he even says it in the book, like, okay, on what level is immorality a respectable sin? I mean, we can list many immoral actions, immoral sins, and they're all pretty much on the, like, you know, despicable sins list, not the respectable sins list. But one that he brought out that I thought really deserves our attention is vicarious immorality. What he's saying here is, okay, so we might not ourselves go out and have an affair or, you know, look at nude pictures or, um, you know, have premarital sex or whatever, but do we allow ourselves to participate in immorality vicariously? So let's think about this. Um, You know, when you're walking through the grocery store, Do you allow your eyes to wander on the tabloids and the magazines of basically naked people? Um, Or or do you catch yourself? Do you, do you, and you know, sometimes it's just difficult. You didn't expect to see it and there it was and oh my goodness. Um, But do we allow our eyes to linger? You know, that was David's problem. It wasn't a sin that he saw Bathsheba. It was the sin that he allowed his eyes to linger, which caused his heart and his mind to linger, which led him into immoral activity. 
He should have, like Joseph did. Okay, I am in this moment of temptation with Potiphar's wife. It wasn't Joseph's fault. He didn't put himself in that. But when he was faced with that, he ran. He even left his coat in her hands. He said, I, I'm getting as far away and as quick as I can. I'm leaving this situation. And that's what we need to be careful to do on TV. TV is a huge one. And, and I think I've shared this before on different episodes, but I'll share it again because it's it is a perfect example of this. You know, I am a romantic at heart. I love, um, you know, I, I love romance movies. I love romance TV shows. I, I spent most of my teenage years reading Christian romance books. I just, you know, I could spend all day thinking about Prince Charming riding on that white horse, coming to, you know, marry the fair maiden and living happily ever after and having all the babies that'll fill a castle. Like, yes. I love a good romance. Um, And, you know, then when I got married and Simeon and I were watching movies, watching TV and stuff, you know, together, things affected him in a different way than they affected me. And he came to me and he was like, look, these, some of these things that you're watching, like we shouldn't be watching them. And, And at first I was very like defensive, like, well, it's not you know, rated R or it's not, you know, this or it's not that. It's just like this one little scene we can just look away or whatever. But but the the principle that he really helped me realize was I would I mean I want I don't want to say I would never. We're all weak and we're all susceptible of of sinning. But you know, a sin that I might think, oh I wouldn't do that. You know, I wouldn't cheat on my husband. But I'm sitting here watching a TV show where she's flirting with some guy in the office. And okay, maybe that wasn't like a horrible sex scene, but it still was promoting something that is immoral behavior, that that is dangerous, that we should not be feeding ourselves, especially in the form of entertainment. I mentioned um how in my high school years, I read a lot of Christian biographies, or not Christian biographies. I mean, I did read Christian biographies, but Christian romance novels. Christian biographies are wonderful. Read all of those. Christian romance novels, on the other hand, be careful. Be careful. Now, let me give a shout out here to single women, first of all, because that's where I was in this time of my life. If you are struggling with being patient and trusting the Lord in a season of singleness, Christian romance is not what you need to choose to fill a void in your heart. That's what I did. I lived vicariously. I didn't have a boyfriend. I didn't have a husband. So I lived vicariously through the books that I read. And again, they were filthy, but it did not help me keep an eternal perspective. It kept me wrapped up and I've got to find a boyfriend. What can I do? How can I look prettier? How can I, you know, it just, it, it kept me in a place that I shouldn't be. And then, you know, I, I realized that just because something has the little sticker on the spine that says Christian fiction does not mean that it is glorifying the Lord. You know, there were quite a few Christian fiction books that I read, um, especially that time in my life when I hadn't been married yet, that I learned a few things from um, that I would come away blushing like, oh my goodness, um, I probably shouldn't have read that. You know, my heart was very burdened earlier in this year. There was a very popular um, Christian fiction romance book that I had read in my high school years that they made into a movie and it came out. And, you know, the Lord, since reading that, goodness, this has been like, oh, I'm going to date me. This has been like 15 years ago that I read the book. Um, Seeing it anew and afresh, you know, the Lord had convicted me through that, like, okay, I need to 
not give so much time and attention to reading this kind of, this genre of book. It's not doing anything to help me um, spiritually. But then when this movie came out, it kind of just was a refreshing reminder to me um, that we've got to be so careful that we do not take our entertainment, whether it be via book or movie, and allow it to look just like the world. Oh, but we're going to put this little like Christian message and, you know, make it make it sound like the gospel. Oh man, I could just get on a tangent here and we're not going to do it. <laughs> we're not going to do it. It's not the time and place. But let me just say that um, if I, I did not see the movie, but if I would have, and, and even reading the book, I didn't necessarily pick up the book and stay up till 4 a.m. not able to put it down because of the riveting message of, of redemption and restored love that comes from Christ. No, I couldn't put it down because of the captivating sensual story that it painted in the book. And so the just bringing it back, <laughs> keeping me focused, um, this vicarious immorality, be careful. And I think now that I am a mother with daughters, I'm seeing this in a whole new light of where I didn't feel like it was quite such a big deal when it was me. I am instructing them. I am training them and I, I want their hearts to be pure. And oh boy, I could get off on another tangent here, but let me just, let me throw this in. Purity is not just virginity, that that's part of it. That is part of it. I, I, I hope for my daughters and I hope for you single lady listeners that, um, you can give the gift of virginity to your husband one day. That is God's plan. If you have not saved that there is redemption, there is restoration found in God. God can bring beauty from ashes and restore and redeem things that have been broken or lost. Um, but his perfect plan is that a man and a woman come together and save sexual intimacy for their marriage. But purity is so much more than just virginity. Purity goes beyond your sexual body parts. Purity goes into your mind, into your heart. And, and these, these, these TV shows, these movies, these books, these magazines, these different things that we're bombarded with in our culture as acceptable, as promotable, as okay, these worldly entertainment choices, they're sin, ladies, and we they have no place in the life of a woman who is is trying to have biblical womanhood, who is trying to be Christ-like in the way that she lives. So we're going to wrap up that one so that it just does not become <laughs> what the whole episode is going to overtake. But I just there, some of those things are I'm just passionate about because I've seen the destruction that Satan can do in the heart of a Christian when you are not on guard. That's really what I was. I was naive. I was not on guard in certain of these areas and they had a negative effect on my life. And I'm thankful that God has shown those to me and has helped me make changes. And there's still more changes that I need to make in these areas as I weed out that worldliness and seek Christ-likeness. But we're, the last one here is idolatry. Um, he, he says, you know, okay, so we're not like worshiping Baal. We're not worshiping these images. But an idol can be anything that we place such a high value on that it tends to absorb our emotional and mental energy or our time and resources. Or it can be anything that takes precedence over our relationship with God or family. Now, 
I'm going to change something that I do not agree with that he says. Anything that takes, he said, okay, so the author says, anything that takes precedence over a relationship with God or family. Ladies, I believe that you can make your family an idol, that you can make your husband an idol, that you can make your children an idol. So I don't agree with that statement there. I think that an idol is anything that takes precedence over our relationship with God and God alone. And I say that because I've been guilty of that. I know when I first got married, Simeon was my everything. I mean, in a sense, he he was the, the God of my life. I just, I... I mean, I didn't bow at his feet in worship, but in, in my actions and in my thinking, I worshiped him. I elevated to him to a place that that he shouldn't have, which meant I had an idol in my heart, but it also set himself up, or in, in my mind, I set him, him up for failure because I required things. I needed things from him. I looked to him for things that he was never going to be able to fulfill in my life because those were things that only God could fill in my life. So I just, I wanted to make that point um, here that an idol is anything that we put above the Lord. I know sometimes we tend to do that with our children. You know, we just, and, and I mean, come on. I'm a mom. If I'm talking to other moms here, you're sitting here like, my life is my kids. I mean, before I wake up, they're up. And before I go to bed, they're up. And they just, they consume every moment of every day and and they consume all of you. And, and, and I'm there, especially in this, this little season. I mean, they, they are my world. They, everything that I do revolves around them. Even if they aren't present with me, like even if I find a babysitter and go out somewhere, like it's still my, my thinking, my heart, because I love them. I love them and I want my life to revolve around them, but I need to be careful that I don't allow myself to elevate them to a point of an idol in my heart where I am so focused on them, so focused on what they need of me that I neglect my relationship with Christ. And I think that is a difficult space. That is a difficult thing as a mama. You know, like I said, my kids are up before me in the morning. So it is very difficult for me to get time with the Lord in the mornings. And so often they went out. We just go straight to breakfast and to playing. And before I know it, I fall onto my pillow at night, exhausted and realize I haven't talked to the Lord today. I haven't read his word today. Well, I'll do it tomorrow. And then, you know, I, I, that's it. I'm going to set my alarm. I'm going to get up. Well, then the newborn's up all night. And I, you know, I just, I, I sleep in. And then here goes the day again. And in that sense, if I am allowing that to, to, keep me from my walk with the Lord, that's an idol in my life. Now, you know, maybe I I have to sleep in to be able to function because I'm exhausted. But that means that nap time, quiet time, whatever, my time with the Lord needs to be number one priority. Or, hey, if, if it's the evening and I realize I haven't spent time with the Lord, I need to go to bed earlier so that I can read, so that I can be in His Word, so that I can fellowship with Him. We just, we've got to keep Him on the throne of our hearts and not put anything else over that, whether it's something like money or things or status or popularity, or if it's even good things like our husband, like our children, like ministry. Do you realize that ministry can become an idol, that doing things for God can take the place in your heart of God, be careful. Be warned, ladies. We've got to to ask God to help us to keep him and him alone as king of our hearts. 
So the author closes out this chapter. He says, how can we then deal with our tendencies towards worldliness? Um, Because in that first passage that I read, you know, we've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Our flesh wants worldliness. Our sinful man wants these things. So how can we deal with our tendency towards that? How do we fight that? How How do we yield to the new man and not succumb to the old man? He says, it is not by determining that we will not be worldly, but by committing our ourselves to becoming more godly. We need to grow in our relationship with him and begin to view all aspects of life through the lens of his glory. And that's really my heart's desire for myself, for you ladies, that we will just become so in love with Christ, that we will be so enamored with our King, that that these things won't have a draw on us, that they won't uh, woo our hearts, because our hearts have already been wooed and won by the shepherd of our souls. Let's close this episode in prayer. Father, I just thank you for who you are and that in spite of our weakness and our wandering and and our choosing other things over you, that you still call to us, that you still draw our hearts to yours. Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us to keep you on the throne, to keep everything else in its proper place, and to not allow worldliness to creep into our hearts, but that we will be focused on eternity, that we will be just completely infatuated and falling in love with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope that the No Higher Calling podcast has been a blessing to you. If so, please subscribe, share with your friends, and engage with me on Instagram at nohighercalling underscore. You can also subscribe to receive the No Higher Calling encouragement email on my website, which is www.nohighercalling.org. This includes podcast notes, what I'm reading, spiritual encouragement, a glimpse into my home, and some of my favorite products and resources. You can also enjoy more content on the No Higher Calling YouTube channel. I pray that this podcast will encourage you to fall more in love with Jesus and to be the Christian woman he's called you to be. Thanks for listening.